1: Howdy friends out of patience is on hiatus for a couple of weeks. So for the next few Tuesdays and Thursdays, we're going to be dropping our best of in case you missed it episodes from 2022 and 2021. Of course, if you didn't miss it, you don't have to listen to it, but we hope in case you did miss it, you'll enjoy the episode that you missed. I think that made sense in any case. If you did miss this episode, we hope you enjoy it. New episodes of Out of Patience, Vaxon, and some new correspondent segments will be dropping starting September 6th. Thank you and have an amazing summer. Casey Altman.
2: Hello. Hi there.
1: Hi. Live in studio here at our script on the Out of Patience universe.
2: Happy See, to be here. I,
1: I, well, hey, we're all happy to <laughs> fucking be here, but it's just so lovely to physically be in person, meet you, you're here, the energy, you you activate the mind in meeting people. Thank you. Yeah.
3: Likewise. Well done. Thank you. It means a lot.
1: When did you first realize that there were girls named Casey with a C? <laughs> I'll
3: tell you, actually, I dated a boy in seventh grade named Casey with a C, so I, I haven't... <laughs> Yeah, I swear to God, we were Casey and Casey. But you want to hear why it wasn't that weird, is I'd never refer to myself as Casey. So someone would say, I'd call him Casey, he'd call me Casey, and then one of our friends would say Casey, and we'd both
1: turn <laughs> around awesome. at the same
3: time. So needless to say, I haven't had too many girls with Casey with a C, but I, several boys, men now, but boys back then. My
1: sister-in-law was named Casey with a C. Oh,
3: right on. Yeah, cool. so,
1: but my my late brother-in-law was named Carl with a K and not a C. Today's episode brought to you by the letters C and K (laughs) and the number seven for no reason.
3: That's funny. My sister, I nicknamed her Carl. So we've got Casey and Carl in the family. Oh, my God.
1: (laughs) Kismet with a K.
3: (laughs) Yep, with a K. Exactly.
1: All right. So I just have to know, Montana State University to Chattanooga in Tennessee to Penn State. What the fucking, <laughs> how the hell did that happen?
3: Damn, you did your research. I'm impressed. Um, Those okay. are not three
1: states that go in an order.
3: <laughs> they really, really aren't. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, and it's very circuitous. So if you don't follow, it's totally fine. But um, I committed to Montana State at age 16, which is way too young to decide where you're going to go to college. Of but course. I wanted to be a Division One volleyball player. And whoever gave me the opportunity to earn a scholarship, that's where I wanted to go. So I was 16, decided to go to Montana State, went there for two years, absolutely loved it. And then uh, there was a coaching staff turnover, which led me to Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, I lasted six months there. Uh, it was just not my cup of tea. Okay. Um, the people were very, very kind. I think I'd developed too much of a sense of self at that point. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't like stand idly by and witness injustices. And, and ju- It was just different, different. Go- coming from California, I'm from San Diego. Montana was more mountainous. Tennessee was a little too close-minded for me. So... I left after six months and then I decided, hey, I'm not going to transfer for a third time. There's no way I'm going to relocate, make new friends, you know, new life. So I decided to finish my degree online through Penn State and I traveled for the year.
1: Were you still Penn State, even though you were online?
3: Exactly. What, Penn we State. are Penn State yeah. virtual. <laughs> so funny enough, I'd never been on campus until three weeks ago. My boyfriend's sister actually is a freshman at Penn State. So we went to a football game. So that was the first time I've ever been on campus. I didn't walk at commencement. I never, you know, had the college experience at Penn State until that moment. So that was kind of a special experience.
1: That's pretty cool. Yeah, it was cool. And I think you have the same degree as me. Was it communications or something? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I have a BA in um. It doesn't matter.
2: (laughs) Same.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It was an off Broadway show many years ago called Avenue Q, and the lead character had just finished college and he couldn't get a job. It's like. I can't pay the bills yet because I had no skills yet.
3: <laughs> <laughs> After all that money we paid for college. Can you imagine that?
1: I think the song is called What Do You Do With A B.A. in English. That's the name of the song.
3: Relatable. <laughs> totally relatable. relatable. Yeah.
1: Volleyball sounds super cool, but that's not a career unless you're like, was it Mia Ham?
3: Mm-hmm. Truly, volleyball was kind of my life. Um, I played at the Division One level, so it was like, Technically, I'm getting my school paid for in order to be an athlete. They call it student athlete, but it's more like athlete student. Right. Unfortunately, I wish the paradigm was a little different. But I realized that I was a decent writer in college. Um, I think I like submitted one of those silly um, breakup thought catalogues. Remember those like kind of melodramatic? Actually, this might be more Gen Z. Ooh, I'm, dating myself. I will. I, I'm, I night,
1: I'm dating myself. I'm um, out.
3: I think I'm dating myself. But uh, you crazy I, kids. <laughs> But um, I realized I could write decently. And that led me to actually pursue a career in, in sales. Because I realized, hey, if I could leverage my writing skills, and I like to be around people, and I have the gift of gab, like, why not try to make some money while I'm at it? So that's how I got to where I am now.
1: You entered at a film company?
3: <laughs> I did. It was kind of a...
1: Like an indie or like a kind of garage somewhere?
3: Indy, for sure. Okay. It wasn't much of an internship, but okay. I did a little bit of digital marketing for them. It was a good thing to do while a junior or senior in, in college, but I didn't can't say I did too much to help I mean, the company. did you get
1: the journalist bug? Did you get the media bug then? Or was that always kind of in you?
3: I've always been like really authentically curious as a person, but I really think that bug only bit once I was diagnosed and started my podcast. I don't think... Diagnosed with what? (laughs) Badass. Flare.
1: (laughs) Diagnosed with flare.
3: (laughs) Um, Diagnosed with... Do you want me to say the full name of it? It's a mouthful. It's
1: a lot of syllables, I know. I'll let you do it because I will totally fuck it up.
3: You know, I have this distinct memory of first learning my diagnosis a little over a year ago turning to my mom and saying, I'm never going to be able to memorize that. Yeah. It's fusion positive alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma.
1: Gazentite. <laughs> I've heard of rhabdomyosarcoma. That's enough syllables in and of itself.
3: Absolutely. So we call it rhabdo. <laughs> but you had to be
1: special and get all the other syllables before it. I know.
3: It. It's so extra. I didn't need it. But here we are.
1: I was reading that you were healthy and well. Mm-hmm. There's another funny line from the movie 50-50 where before Joseph Gordon-Levitt gets diagnosed, he's like, but I recycle, you know, <laughs> like, like what are we doing wrong? <laughs> you know, is it fair to say like, doesn't matter, do what you want. It's all shot in the dark.
3: Yes. hundred percent. Like I said, I was a college athlete. I was a, a health junkie. I worked at a supplement shop at a certain point in college. That was the beacon of health. Like I even had a Fitstagram at a certain point. So like, you know how in it I was
1: that's very impressive it's
3: really Im- embarrassing actually and you can't dig it up but i had no symptoms i was working out 45 minutes to an hour a day i was really into cardio and high- were you, no. <laughs> you were
1: recycling no you weren't recycling Not enough, See, apparently <laughs> yeah paper plastic god it's is preventing like, cancer
3: i think i composted a little bit okay but yeah you that know. might
1: have spared you from like stage four
3: yeah no i'm stage four.
1: Oh yeah <laughs> fuck all that then <laughs>
3: Yeah, unfortunately, but um, so eat the cake. Like that's my advice to anybody. Yeah, I was pescatarian, I was vegan, I was whole food plant based, I was keto, I was paleo, I was all that shit, and I was diagnosed with a pediatric cancer that has no association to your diet, no genetic affiliation, and
1: at an age way above the pediatric threshold.
3: Totally. So it's like, had I indulged and eaten the cake or had the pie. Had I done that, it probably wouldn't have changed my outcome because something just went awry in my body and my T cells and B cells stopped working, you know, as cancer does. And I couldn't have done anything to change it. My diet definitely was not part of it, considering its onset is usually in six-year-olds.
1: So this goes back to the young adult cancer thing. Like, it's not about what you have. It's age first. And then let's look at what your life is like because this shit happened to you. Man, did we fight for that really hard Mm -hmm. in the early 2000s that there's pediatric and everyone else. And this group in the middle, where it's not better or worse, it yep. could be, maybe it's not, but it's different. And here's why. And give a shit about that.
3: You're either a baby or you're a geezer, and, <laughs> and we're that group in between, right? And like, where yeah. do we, you know, they, this process is really, really fucking lonely. Yes. And the only thing that makes it a little bit better is connecting with the community and people who actually understand it. And of course, then you run the risk of ultimately maybe losing somebody as a result of it. So it's a double edged sword, and it's something to chew on for sure. But At the end of the day, like, we just want to feel like we're not alone. Right. And to have a community that actually understands it, like the work that you've done with Stupid Cancer, Off Script Health. And then I think of like the cancer patient, that amazing, you know, that amazing Instagram. Yes. Incredible. I, I, I want to know who runs it so badly, but it's just creating space for people to go through a journey that was previously really, really lonely. And it still is in a lot of ways, but creating space for us. Like, hey, that's important.
1: So I have a question about that specifically. When I stepped down, I wrote a very thoughtful LinkedIn article about my exit, why I'm choosing to do this for obviously personal reasons, but I wanted to believe that all of the hard work, all the sweat equity we put into the 2000s and the early 2010s to even invent the words young adult cancer as a thing you could say on a poster or get into a journal had paved the way to make many things less terrible. And insofar as some of our really uphill battles were like guaranteed awareness of infertility risk or pathways to student loan debt forgiveness or a oncology nursing guideline that encourages you to think of the age first. A lot of these things were fairly institutionalized and academic and public health policy wise. Did you feel like you were treated as a 24 year old or just as any other human with cancer irrelevant to your age?
3: I'd venture to say my experience was unique because I was diagnosed in 2020 during COVID. Granted, I have a cancer that usually shows itself in kids aged six to 12. So I was in the pediatric unit sitting on those little chairs, bright colors galore. I think they did Candyland theme for Halloween and it's, and it's happy, honestly, like I I think I'd prefer to be there, but it's also really, really freaking heavy Seeing babies going through this, you know, and you're scratching your head trying to figure out where the plan is and all of this, and who's puppeteering this these strings. It's just, it's a fucked thing to grapple with. But I would say I was I was treated like a pediatric patient, but I I liked that. I liked that a lot more. Like you, I was in the in between, so I could either be the youngest by 20 years in the adult ward, or I could be the oldest by 20 years in the pediatric ward, and you know, pick your poison. For me, the pediatric ward is happier more joyful. There were more toys. There were more sparkles. Um, That's where I did my frontline treatment at Memorial Sloan Kettering in the pediatric unit. And I really liked my experience there. But to your point, no, I definitely was not treated as a 24 year old.
1: I was also 21 when diagnosed and tossed into peds. You just brought back all these crazy triggers because I too had, you know, the rainbow carpet and the plushies all over the place and the clouds on the ceiling. And people thought I was a parent. Yep. Of a sick child. Mm-hmm.
3: And I don't I don't know who I'd rather be. I mean, those right. parents go through so it's much. It's like over under. Yeah, seriously.
1: What the hell is it like to get diagnosed with cancer during a fucking pandemic?
3: Oh, my God. It's crazy. The first thing I'll say is I totally waited to go to the doctors. Granted, I, I have an aggressive cancer that spread to stage four within the span of two to three months. So, like, there wasn't that much that I could have done. But damn, if it weren't COVID, I probably would have gone in earlier because, you know, I didn't want to get exposed to, right. to a doctor's office. You know, that's where sick people go. Um, so the experience was interesting. It took me a while to get diagnosed because I had two borderline negligent doctors who just blew me off and said, you're young, you're healthy, you're fit, like you're fine. All too common, right?
1: That's just rinse and repeat shit that shouldn't be anymore.
3: It should not. And like, I'm glad to see other AYA patients are using their voice and exposing these doctors because first of all, you know, more than anyone that if you have hair or you look healthy, like you could be on hospice, like that's no indicator of your health. Right. It really isn't. And for whatever reason we perceive people you're sick you're bald you're pale you're in a gray of the hospital room and it's like in between diagnosis and death potentially like there's a lot of color and there's a, yeah. it's not gray it's not even close to gray but yeah it, it's been interesting it's been really hard I think for me I found a lot of solace in connecting with the community through social media because honestly that's been the only means of connection for me right because I haven't gotten a chance to really meet many people in person but in some ways, that's made people more accessible to me. So like there are a couple of people, yourself included, I really look up to in the community and I've gotten a chance to connect with them through the Internet. And that's that's a luxury. That's the good side of social media. And there's obviously a bad side, too. But I've leveraged that a lot as a result of, you know, my circumstances amidst COVID.
1: All right. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with Casey with a K. Casey Olvin. I read this thing you wrote somewhere, but you put it on LinkedIn. I do my appropriate stalking of all my guests. And I love to start conversations around the idea of choose your own metaphor in cancer. Are you a fighter, a warrior, a survivor? Pick your poison, right? But I hate military terms in cancer. If you didn't fight hard enough, like my late brother-in-law died at 19 and what did he not fight hard enough when he lost his battle to cancer but i understand that it's not about either or or us versus them it's how you want to identify with yourself and let other people have their opinions what's your thoughts on that
3: fuck battle language yeah <laughs> that's my two cents you really Phil. yeah no i just i to your point with your late brother-in-law like Here I am in the pediatric ward and you had the same experience. You're seeing sick children left and right. Like the ultimate tragedy of innocent, sick children. They've never sinned a day in their life. Like their hair is on the ground. They're wailing because they're getting poked and prodded and and whatnot. And if they lose their battle, is that because they didn't fight hard enough? right. It's just bullshit to me. And, And I'd venture to say I'm a survivor from day one it's a point of contention with survivorship. Does it start once you finish treatment and you think you're probably going to outlive your prognosis or is it the moment in which you're diagnosed? I'm a fucking survivor. Granted, I fight every damn day, but my life isn't defined by the worst thing that's ever happened to me. I'd hate for that to be. Granted, I've used it as a platform and I've shared a lot of my musings about it, but I'm so much more than my diagnosis. Um, My oncopsychiatrist, which is a field, it's amazing at MSK. I wish I had that. I'm so grateful I do. She's incredible. She's Wait, incredible. that's the whole of the show. Yeah, wow, no, what? seriously. Really? Yeah, I should put you in touch with her. She's an MD-PhD at MSK. She's amazing. She told me once, change the rhetoric around you being a cancer patient and say that you're a person with cancer. Granted, it's kind of semantics, you know, a cancer patient versus a person with cancer, but but the implication is that we are just what we're dealing with, and that's not the reality. You know, I'm a, I'm a writer. I'm a traveler. I'm. I work at Google. Like, I... I have a really colorful, beautiful life outside of this gray period. This (laughs) shittery. Yeah, this shit, this fuckery. (laughs) Um, But I don't know. I I hate hearing when people have lost their battle because cancer does not prey on the weak. It does not allow the strong to survive. Like there's no rhyme or reason to it. And we've witnessed that firsthand, especially being in the peds unit. So to think that, it favors those strong is just, it's a silly misnomer. If cancer ever killed me, I want people to say she was murdered by cancer. I don't want to say she lost her battle.
1: Now that's a podcast series.
3: <laughs> Good, I'm True crime, oncology division. <laughs> exactly my thoughts.
1: So a little history lesson. In 1986, an organization called the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship was born. And we profiled that organization in episode three and four of the Cancer Mavericks documentary which is wherever you can listen to your podcasts and it was formed by a bunch of angry people largely like in their 20s and 30s who just wanted to be taken seriously because the technology was finally starting to exist we didn't die right away and what was this country going to do from a medicare reimbursement from a billing of the treatments of long-term care and rehabilitation So the word survivorship was born out of a public health policy need to create services that would be covered by Medicare in hospitals. And they had to declare that you were a survivor from the day you're diagnosed in order to guarantee you those reimbursements. That's where that started from. So the fact that we're having a conversation today about I don't feel like a survivor on the day I was diagnosed, Livestrong's. Earliest manifesto said, we kick in the day or are diagnosed. I'm like, nothing kicks in the day or are diagnosed except diarrhea.
3: <laughs> and, and constipation. And,
1: yeah, either one. <laughs> Pick your side effect. But help me, this old geezer who's turning happily 48 in six months.
3: Happy birthday.
1: We didn't have, you know, the interwebs and the fancy shit. We had like AOL floppy disks and CompuServe and also the crazy crap. What was it like for you to use the internet for something you never expected to have to need it for?
3: It's been grounding, personally. This is also a polarizing topic. People either like to be very private about their cancer journey or very public about it, and I chose the latter. And I'll tell you why. It circles back to the loneliness. I found going through cancer and secrecy is the most isolating experience you can imagine. And the reality is there's so many other people who experience it, but they aren't often portrayed in the media. So you don't know that these people exist until you find them through communities, maybe online or other. For me, it's a conduit of good if you let it be. And there's a very dark side to it, much of which I've been exposed to. I'll get like hate comments on my tongue in cheek, like TikTok posts these days. And it's a really trippy experience. But I've found it to be fortifying, grounding, not only from a community standpoint, and a support and love and, you know, even prayers, like any good vibes, any good energy, like I will take that, you know, it can't hurt. But also from a medical standpoint, I found that getting the word out and, you know, going on podcasts or doing as much exposure as I possibly can for myself actually sets me up for a better scenario medically because more people know about it, especially when you're dealing with a really rare condition. People won't know to come across you until words out. So I've done a little bit of fundraising. I've done my podcast. I share. I probably overshare on Instagram. Um, But I've received some pretty positive feedback from not only the community and newly diagnosed people, which, by the way, that's like one of my favorite groups to to penetrate because I was there a year ago and I was so lost and lonely and sad and like stage four at 24. You know, like, where do you go from there? My life just started. Um, For me, it's been a conduit of good. I just need to remind myself to not ride the highs just as much as I can't ride the lows because sometimes I'll get a troll telling me how ugly I am on TikTok. And I'm like, that shouldn't hurt my feeling, damn it. Because I honestly, I don't care. Like, I right. don't care. I'm so much more than my looks anyways. I, I mean, that was proven when I went bald for a year. Like, we especially- as, You're as
1: adorable, honey. <laughs>
3: adorable. But even if I wasn't, like, who gives a shit? <laughs> you know, like, I'm just trying to
0: survive. actually that,
1: And that leads <laughs> me to another question too. When you're a young adult- and you're diagnosed in your teens or 20s, maybe less 30s. You have a cohort group of people you're friends with, and then you become suddenly maturated. You have the brain and the wisdom uh, of a, an 80 year old, you know, in the body of someone that feels 80, but is still in your <laughs> teens or 20s. Yep. Have you felt over this forced maturation, very quick forced maturation, that you don't really jive? With your tribe as much anymore because they're still into the fun trivial shit
3: i love forced maturation that's exactly what it is i've been really really incredibly lucky with my community there have been a couple <laughs> a couple aberrant people that i've been a little disappointed by but generally speaking my friends have shown up for me in ways that i i couldn't even fathom like i'd be popped around the country a little bit just pursuing treatment i actually moved back to california for a trial that fell through and then i moved to New York two months ago to pursue treatment on two lesions that came about in the last couple months. So I move around a lot and I'm, you know, I'm going to Cleveland, LA, Florida, like that's my plan. So to be present in my life, you have to be like an active participant in what I'm posting on social media, when I'm FaceTiming you or calling you or talking to you or occasionally seeing you in person. Right. All of my people have made an incredible effort and I really felt like they valued how finite my time feels on this planet. I don't know if it is, and, and honestly, like I have so many options that I could very well live another fifty years. But I'm also rooted in reality. I have some
1: cannabis oil over here, by the way.
3: <laughs> I actually heard my um, secret stash
1: of cannabis oil <laughs>
3: and essential oils are really good. Yeah, <laughs> that's another funny thing is people online telling you to, what cures your cancer.
1: Well, that was so stupid. Cancer had one of the very first Facebook pages in 2008, uh, and God knows the cannabis oil douchebags were there on day one.
3: No, that's it's incessant. It's everywhere.
1: Did you ever at any point feel pitied?
3: Yeah, for sure. And I still do. <sighs> Stage four cancer on paper is like so, <laughs> such an imminent death, even though it really isn't anymore. Like, no. there are a lot of like radical remission survivors, and I aim to be one of them, knock on wood. But I felt. In certain instances that I am the tragic story that people from high school, when they're feeling bad about their life, they'll turn to my Instagram page and say, well, at least I'm not her. Oh, God. (laughs) And and that's a weird feeling. Like I.
1: My life is so good now.
3: (laughs) Exactly. Like, all right. I I will admit I've done the most for a pretty long time. Like I was a college athlete. I then traveled the world for a year. Like I moved to New York City. I said, fuck it. I moved from San Diego to New York City when I graduated college and I started working for Google. And it's like all these things like I lived this life that I. I don't know if people envied, but I think if anybody unfollowed me on Instagram back then, it was because my life was, like, too good. Right. And now it's, like, the unfollowing because my (laughs) life is too shitty. And it's, like, that's a weird transition for me. That's like the scales
1: of justice don't even know where to land (laughs) at this point. I know,
3: right? It's kind of on me for having been extra in the first place. But, you know, I I guess I was misrepresenting my life to be more glamorous and perfect than it was. And here's a toast of reality, you know, a, a throat in your face type of dose of reality that's
1: like the pinterest fail memes from like 10 years ago (laughs) here's what my casserole really looks like
3: (laughs) yep exactly
1: (laughs) but i gotta tell you i worked for google for a couple of years in the mid-2000s on their early stage health ideas Mm -hmm. which just failed the world was not ready for giving your data to anybody but back then it wasn't like ooh, google the math nerds were like, "It's G-O-O-G-O-L. Yep. What the fuck is wrong with you guys? It's spelled this, one. but today you work for Google. You know, I, yeah, I sweep the floors, but yeah, I work for Google. <laughs> yep. All right, hold that thought. Take another break because we have to keep this conversation going. More with Casey Alman when we get back.
2: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again.
1: What do you do at Google? How often do you Google while you're at Google?
3: (laughs) I Google every day all the time. I actually don't use YouTube that much though, which is kind of a Gen Z part of me. But I work in the new business sales side of things. So I basically consult businesses that are new to the Google ad suite on, hey, what are your marketing OKRs, KPIs? How can I help you get there by way of leveraging the Google ad suite? So maybe that's YouTube ads. I sold my soul to the corporate devil and I sell people's data for a living. But honestly... I got hired there. Three months later, I was diagnosed. So thank God for their incredible health Well, they had great health
1: insurance. They've oh, always had great health insurance. Out of this
3: world. I think my max out-of-pocket deductible, which, by the way, hit January 5th, 2600 Right. Like, mind-blowingly good. Yes. So-
1: Google is notoriously well-known on the good side of reputation for having a kick-ass, insanely beneficial policy for employees.
3: I'm really, really lucky. I really am. I actually was laid off right before then. During COVID, I got let go from my job at Greenhouse, which is a tech startup. And I was on Cobra for three months. So imagine had I gotten diagnosed when right. I during that time. It just would have been a different See? experience. Timing. exactly. Well done. Yeah. Good you. for
2: you thank getting you.
1: diagnosed well into your new job.
3: <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I appreciate yeah.
1: it. <laughs> Take a bow. <laughs> I want to get into podcasting because I come from an age where it was just online talk radio. And then someone said, we're calling it podcast because there's an iPod and we listen to things on an iPod and now I'm going to talk and you're going to listen to me talking on your iPod and it's podcasting. Do you feel like the word podcast has been corrupted for people to just think, oh, it's either Joe Rogan or some schmuck in a sewer with a microphone yelling at the sky?
3: Is that us? where the schmucks in the sewer. No, no. I got a real show. <laughs> you do. You do. You're not a schmuck at all.
1: I want to make you this. You belong on the I air. Would, I
3: would love to be. I think... What I'll tell you about podcasts is it's absolutely saturated. There's a podcast for every damn thing in the world. And it is, I think it's suffocating. I think it's too much content. I mean, there's an oversaturation of content. It's the opposite of TikTok. On TikTok, there aren't enough posters, but there are a lot of users who just scroll. Right. Podcasts, there's so many podcasts. So it's like, how do you even know what's for you? I'm not bothered by the term necessarily, but that's probably the Gen Z in me speaking out. What I will say, is, it's an amazing forum. And it really allows you to connect with people like... Listening to the episode with your kids, I feel like I got to know you on a level that I don't think I would have gotten a chance to otherwise. Like, very special experience. So I, I think it allows listeners to really connect with the hosts, which I appreciate, especially in this virtual world. But yeah, I wouldn't say that it bothers me. But I, I too, I remember radio talk shows. Those were the freaking best. I, I wish we could bring them back.
1: Well, let's talk about your show, The Reroute, because sure. you do it well. Thank you. And I think it's because you have a penchant of media, you know, baked into your DNA. Most people don't. Most people don't have a vibrant personality or one that they could turn on when you click record. For me, broadcasting is all about entertainment first. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, it was like, I'm a blogger. And now it's like, I'm a podcaster. I'm a podcaster. God knows what's going to be next. (laughs) Phil has diluted the value of the talent for great content to be consumable.
3: Totally. Completely agree.
1: Yeah. Especially in healthcare.
3: Yeah, for sure. Because
1: it's boring as fuck most of the time. <laughs> this is the be. healthcare podcast. Are you bored, folks? <laughs> Are you bored yet?
3: Are you... you not
1: entertained?
3: <laughs> if you do it right and you have a storyteller like you, like I'm I'm taking notes from you in my head right now about how you're able to articulate stories and like I'm nascent to this. I don't even have the right equipment. But... I've been
1: doing theater since 1991. And
3: it shows.
1: But that's what I'm saying. It's all theatrics. When you can't see it, it's very different. When you have to hear it, you want to stay engaged. I listen to a very specific number of shows of all genres, but I curate it based on how enticed I am by the psychological dynamic of the host or the narrator. I need to be triggered in a way that just captivates me, that I can't wait to hear what they say next. No matter what they say, I love the way they talk.
3: Mm, so that's discerned by the person that that you have on, or it's is the,
1: that? It's the character of a host but i think we've lost sight of quality and it's too easy to do it and my generation and older think that podcasts are just zoom calls you only listen to and we're media people we want the highest quality audio we want noise canceling noise gate reductions we want de-echoing these things that people don't consider It doesn't take away if there's a great podcast with lower audio quality. It could be a great show. But this is broadcasting as an art that I hold very near and dear to my standards. And I coach and I advise and I encourage people that want to get into podcasting, A, to not do it. And if they (laughs) do want to do it, read my blog, (laughs) don'tstartapodcast.com, folks. That's a real thing. That
3: is really. <laughs> I have to check it
1: out. You're gonna write a blog and then do a show about my blog and this show.
3: We're the perfect collaboration.
1: Absolutely, yes. <laughs> So what encouraged you to get into this and you've had incredible guests on your show. What are your some of your favorites?
3: I love I love connecting with people. I love hearing unique stories of overcoming. That's why I started the Reroute. It's all about life's pivots and how people overcame what because so often you're on top of the mountain and you're looking down the mountain and you say, "Hey, here's how I climbed up of it." But Seldom do we talk about the grind, the climbing up the mountain itself. So I think allowing people to forum to talk about their struggles and what actually helped. Were there any mentors? Were there any sayings? Were there any affirmations? Like what actually helped get them to that place on top of the mountain? That's been helpful for me and fulfilling and fortifying even in my own, you know, mountain that I'm climbing right now. Metaphorically and physically, sometimes it feels that way. Oh, um. of
1: course. <laughs> Absolutely. Of course. Let's get a little deep here. Like how are you dealing like at three in the morning? When your brain just runs amok and you can't control yourself, how are you managing your life in those isolating moments, even though you may know you have a tribe when you wake up?
3: I I have those 3am moments a lot. I have moments where I can only lay in my bed and stare at the ceiling. No matter where I'm living, I'm staring at the same popcorn ceiling. So it's, it's paralyzing at times. Prozac helps, Uh, (laughs) Ativan helps, having a good community, a great boyfriend, great parents, great family, that helps. But you're still going to experience some of those lonely, lonely moments that we've talked about, like... How I deal with it is I hold on to this with literal white knuckles at times. If I'm living a miserable existence, why do I want to extend my life? Right. And I hold that near and dear to my heart every single second of every single day, which is probably undue pressure sometimes to be happier than I feel like I need to be in a given moment. But I think it's a good lesson. I mean, so much progress has been made in the world of cancer treatment. For my cancer specifically, we've I've been on the same protocol for the last 20 to 40 years. And then at recurrence, everyone just goes in different directions and pursues different clinical trials. And I'm now at that point because I've had a recurrence. So I'm in no man's land. I don't know what's next. I don't know how much time I have left. And granted, I know what my prognosis says, and I know that it's not very great. But what can I do with the time that I've left on this planet? Hopefully make some kind of impact or at least expose people to these truths, because Cancer is always like my friend at my my friend, Leah Schuster beer at Alula always says cancer is like wrapped up in a pink sparkly bow and they like make it pretty. And people talk about losing your hair as if that's like the biggest part of cancer. It's a huge deal for a lot of people. It wasn't for me personally, but how about losing your life? How about fertility? All these things that you mentioned, like there are so many more layers to cancer that I don't think there's an accurate light that's shed on them. If I can do that with the time that I've left on this planet, whether it's, you know, three years or 30 years, why wouldn't I do that?
1: That's profound shit for a (laughs) 25-year-old.
3: I have a lot of time to think. (laughs) I mean, it's unsurprisingly
1: (laughs) profound shit because this is just the world we live in. This is our Apple core. Yeah. I want to wrap up with you sharing with our listeners some of the key life hacks you've managed to weave for yourself. What has been the back belt of tools?
3: Yeah, I'd say I say Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> Netflix is a big one. I got a puppy. That is the biggest word of advice oh, I could I could yes. give anybody. What kind of dog? Mini Golden Doodle.
1: Oh, lovely. She's what's the, her name?
3: Willow. Like Willow. The dream. Yeah, she's the best. I'm already plotting my next dog. But I yeah, I, I think finding levity amidst the the drudgery of everything like it, it's. It's a tough reality. I would never sugarcoat it. It fucking sucks some days. But, I mean,
1: you could drop names, any websites, yeah, any organizations. Yeah, yeah. Um,
3: Alula has been amazing. I mentioned the the CEO, Leah Schuster Beer, is, they basically created a marketplace for uh, cancer patients. So they curate things that, like, you know, you or me said, hey, this product is really helpful for my neuropathy during treatment. Right. Use this product. So that's been a good resource for me personally. Um, the cancer patient, that's a big one on sure. Instagram. Um and
1: hopefully they're listening again. The cancer <laughs> patient on Instagram. I hope
3: so. I'm a big we'll fan. We'll tag them. Yeah. We'll, we'll
1: tag the fuck out of them.
3: And then uh, Suleika Jawad is one of my absolute favorite adore people. adore her. You know her. I, upset. I, I... I
1: met her when she was doing infusion at Sloan Kettering uh, the month she was diagnosed.
3: Wow.
1: We've been friends ever since. She's, She's amazing. She's
3: out of this world. Yeah. And her book is Between Two Kingdoms. Yeah. That's like.
1: Full plug for Suleika Jawad full,
3: here. Full, full plug. She is given voice to the voiceless in a lot of ways and just been such a guiding light for so many people in the community. I'm just so grateful to, to know her and adore her. So yeah, those would be my, th- those are probably my, my big ones. And then of course, script Health and, and Matthew Zachary. That, that's a top one too. I know that guy. <laughs> I do too. He's <laughs> an asshole. <laughs> Fuck that guy. Yeah, right. <laughs> I want to hear your resources before we jump off. What would you recommend?
1: Well, when I was sick, there was nothing at this point, but I would say one of my favorites is The Mighty. TheMighty.com found on my, uh, my friend Mike Parath has like millions of people. It's like a kinder, gentler Facebook for health issues, mental health issues, and it's way better policed and democratized in a great way. And it's private sector, but people find so much value on the mighty. And things like BetterHelp and Talkspace also are printing money in the best sense because they're now private sector platforms that give you permission to be vulnerable to someone who understands you, and is a better use of your time in today's information technology age. My two favorites in the private sector are going to be BetterHelp Talkspace and then in the community space, it'll be uh, The Mighty.
3: I can't wait to check out The Mighty. Yeah, it's a great platform.
1: Full plug for The Mighty, by the way. (laughs) listeners. you don't know it, we'll put links in the episode description to The Mighty. But you and I could talk forever. I would love to talk to you again. I know you're only in New York a short time before you're little army brat tour of clinical trials around the country, which is not okay that you have to do that. (laughs) But uh, this has been just so fantastic.
3: Likewise. I've loved every second.
1: Yeah. Casey Altman, young adult cancer survivor, podcaster, broadcaster. Where can people find you? What's the most important call to action you'd like our listeners to take to get to know who you are?
3: I'll plug my Instagram. It's Casey.Altman, K-A-S-E-Y.Altman, A-L-T-M-A-N. I'm really accessible. I also have an Instagram for my, my podcast if anyone wants to DM me there. And one for your I'm puppy. Safe. No, unfortunately. I didn't start it when she was a puppy, so now she's a year old and it's like uh, it's she's a waste over the of hill. Way way too late, it's right? Too dumb. Yeah, I know, not, not, I not a thing. But, but I've I have two highlights on my on my page. So okay. you can definitely check her out there. <laughs>
1: Casey with a K. That's right. Dot A L T M I N A L T M A N yep. on Instagram. You are an extraordinary human being. And thank you for coming on the show.
3: <laughs> the feeling is so mutual. Thank you for having me.
2: That's all for now. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell
1: all your friends to listen. Tell us what you'd like Matthew to cover in his next episode by leaving a message for us at 855-AUDIO-66, and we
2: might just use it in a future show. Out of Patients is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Betsy Shepard. Our host is Matthew Zachary. It is recorded, mixed, and
1: edited by Betsy Shepard. For advertising and media inquiries, email media
0: at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.